People wouldn't believe what was going to happen until the flood actually arrived and took them all away. So shall my coming be. Two men will be working together in the fields. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be going about their household tasks. One will be taken and the other left. So be prepared, for you know not what day your Lord is coming. What does all this mean? It means exactly what it says. Any minute, any second, could be the last chance that anyone has to give himself to Jesus. Because when he returns, it will happen that fast. So Christian, be alert. And friend, if you haven't given your life to Christ, do it. And do it now, because the rapture will come and Christ will return. It says in the Bible that he will come as a thief in the night. Welcome to the Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Matt Bernico, and I teach media studies at Greenville University in Greenville, Illinois. And I'm I'm the guy handing out all the candy this Halloween. And I'm Dean Detloff, a PhD student at the Institute for Christian Studies in Toronto, and I'm your uh, candy inspector. No safety razors here. You're good to go. <laughs> oh, thanks. That's really nice of you. Yeah, <laughs> you're welcome. Hand them out. <laughs> cool well last week we said that we were done with evangelicalism but we lied a little bit <laughs> just are like you, are you bit. ever are you ever really done with evangelicalism is it ever no. done with you yeah that's the better question is it ever done with you the answer is no um <laughs> so this week we're gonna um we're gonna switch over we're gonna we're shifting gears we're transitioning into a different sort of vibe and that is uh we're doing some spooky stuff for the next like two weeks in the spirit of Halloween, the spookiest time of the year, um, we're going to focus on some spooky stuff in Christianity. And I think there's no real better place to start than uh, taking a good hard look at the movie A Thief in the Night, the best and first, I think, evangelical horror movie that was ever made. <laughs> yeah, uh, Heath Carter mentioned watching it last week when we talked to him. Yeah, it's kind of like a classic in evangelicalism i remember i watched it when i was in youth group and at the time i thought about how lame it was because (laughs) it was made in 1972 um and uh, it's pretty campy to say the least uh now watching it as an adult though i think i have a new appreciation for the film um it's uh let's see bad but kind of awesome (laughs) (laughs) it's definitely uh it's a cool and interesting movie um that has (laughs) I don't know. It's 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 hard to say, like, I don't like it because I do. I think it's really fun. And maybe <laughs> I think that for all the wrong reasons. Um, but we're going to get to it in a minute. We're going to talk to talk about the thief of the night. And if you've never seen it, don't worry. We'll tell you what it's all about and uh, what the big what the big ideas are here. But um, in light of this very spooky season that we're in, uh, Dean, the people have read it they're They've been banging at my my digital door all day long. 
asking, please, pleading with me. Dean, answer these questions for us. And I'm here. Uh, I'm here. you're going you're to have to do it now. You're going to have to answer these questions for the people of Reddit. Okay. I've had a few weeks to rest up, and now I'm ready. Good. Uh, <laughs> replenishing your mana. Thank you. That's right. Uh, good. So here's the question that they need asked. Uh, that they they asked me to ask you. Okay. Is dressing up as ghosts slash vampires slash monsters sinful? I don't understand why dressing hmm. up as these things for Halloween is sinful. We aren't celebrating these things as good. If anything, vampires slash zombies slash monsters are vilified in culture around Halloween time. <laughs> Someone think of those <laughs> monsters. And I don't understand why it's wrong to dress up as ghosts. Ghosts are neutral. They can be good or bad. Could I get your perspective on this? So, Dean, can you uh, can you lay down the law here on this one? Yeah, well, first of all, not all these things are the same. I think that's very important. Uh, in a certain sense, isn't everyone dressed up as a ghost all the time? Because so. in the future, you'll be dead and you'll look like this? Yeah, exactly. If you died that's right terrifying. now, that's how you would look as a ghost. You're already oh. dressed up as a ghost right this moment. Mm. That's, that's, tr- that's a troubling my, idea. That's why I always wear my Sunday best. So. Yeah, <laughs> that makes sense. Uh, the criteria we established in the past is that it is sinful only if you can't imagine Jesus doing it. And if you can, then it's not sinful. So the real mm-hmm. question here is, can you imagine Jesus at a costume party? And I think so. Would Jesus dress up as a vampire? It's hard to say. Hmm. I need to do some thinking about this really quick. Just some quick prayer. Yeah. Um, hmm. I think that I could imagine Jesus uh, with some fangs, but just for fun, just silly fangs. And that would be the joke, right? He would be like, yeah, of course, I'm Jesus Christ. Uh, but today, the only day I get to dress up as the Dark Lord and uh, I'm going to revel in it. You know, why not? Yeah, why not? I mean, could you imagine Jesus as a Frankenstein? I mean, I suppose so. He kind of is one if you think about it. I'm thinking about it and I'm thinking you're right. So here's the thing that really upsets me about this question. Um, and you didn't even mention it. And I think that's kind of messed up, uh, Dean. <laughs> uh, this user says that ghosts are neutral. They can be good or bad. Right. And right. Mm, I don't know about that, though. I don't know. I think that's true. I don't, think, I don't know. But if you're a ghost and you're good, um, what are you even doing here anymore? The only reason, I mean, ghosts are here because they have unfinished business. And that doesn't mean you're probably going to be a good ghost, does it? What if your unfinished business is doing good in the world, though? Hmm. So I'm basing this off of um, not the scriptures, but of a TV show uh, called Supernatural. And in that one, the ghosts aren't good ever. So I don't know. It's kind of beyond my imagination, I suppose. Yeah, well, I mean, that's just TV. That's not real life. Not. It's not the real life ghost that we've all we all know about. For yeah, sure. don't, you, you can't you can't let fiction dictate what you think about ghosts. OK, so here we go. We have an answer. Is it sinful to dress up as ghosts, vampires or monsters? No, it's not there. There you go. Reddit. Uh, like and subscribe. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I'm going to turn the tables on you this week, Matt. Oh, OK. Because I I have found a Reddit that I know will be specifically tailored to your own expertise. Um, Whew. It is from four years ago, so uh, urgent. I don't know. Yeah, it's hopefully, urgent. <laughs> hopefully they've gotten a, uh, an answer by now. But here's the question, and then I'm going to read it as well, because there's some, some additional details. The question is, what's the difference between trick-or-treat and trunk-or-treat? 
A lot of churches seem to have trunk-or-treats as an alternative to Halloween trick-or-treating, but they seem exactly the same, except trunk-of-treats are in a church parking lot instead of in your neighborhood and you hand out candy from your car. Edit. I'm asking more about the spiritual and religious differences, not necessarily the practical and logistical differences. <laughs> it's my observation that a lot of churches promote and host trunk-or-treats while simultaneously warning against Halloween. So, Matt, mm. uh, what are the spiritual and religious differences between a trick-or-treat and a trunk-or-treat? Now, that's a good question. So, I've been I've been to a trunk-or-treat or two in my time, and I've been mm -hmm. to a trick-or-treat or two in my time. And what's the spiritual difference? Hmm. Well, uh, despite the question asker's, uh, I think, intentions and undergirding assumptions, trick-or-treat is actually... Um, more Christian because, mm. uh, okay, so Christianity, um, it's about a lot of things, but it's mostly about uh, Jesus knocking at the door of your heart and only you on the other side of the door can answer. And that's like a lot like Halloween. Mm -hmm. You do, you have to choose to answer the door, to ignore the trick-or-treaters altogether. There's that. So I think uh, trick-or-treating is more theologically sound. A mm. trunk-or-treat is bad. Um, I don't, hmm. It's bad theologically. I'm going to say that because <laughs> <laughs> Jesus, it's just like um, you just got your trunk open to Jesus. No, I don't know. If that's right. Um, no, I can't. I can't do it. I don't think so. I don't think there's anything. I don't think there's anything here. I think trick or treating is just the way to go. A trunk or treat. No, it's bad news. It's uh, it's garbage. It's 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 saying I don't trust you neighbors with your mm -hmm. candy. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah, I only trust these people in this parking lot that my parents yeah, brought me to. Absolutely. Because they won't let me spend time with my secular friends. <laughs> they won't let me dress up like Freddy Krueger with my secular <laughs> friends. <laughs> secular Freddy Krueger. <laughs> uh, I'm glad Freddy Krueger is secular. I think that's probably for the best. <laughs> uh, taking Freddy Krueger to church. Um, well, I've got one more question for you. That will lead mm. us in to this. All right. Film. Okay. Are you ready? <clears throat> <clears throat> yeah, I think so. Here it goes. For some odd reason, I've always wanted to stay here during the rapture. Mm. That's the headline. Here's yeah. the details. I've always wanted to stay on Earth during the rapture, just to watch the world end in first person. You know, grab the popcorn and watch it unfold. If I die before the seven years ends, oh well. I won't miss my family because they'll be in heaven. I'm a Christian, but I want to stay here. I mean, the world's going to end anyways, so why not enjoy it from a first-person view, grab a Mountain Dew, sit on my front porch, and watch the show? Does anyone anyone else want to as well? Or am I just odd like that? Yeah. <laughs> what a what a twisted and skewed perspective on things, huh? I know. So, yeah, I think... I mean, you could do that. You could do that. It'd be bad to do that, though. Um... Because it would mean that you, you can't get saved until strategically after the rapture, <laughs> I think. And True. like, what if you died accidentally before that? <laughs> That'd be bad. <laughs> the, the catch here is knowing enough about the rapture to know how to not get raptured. Right. And the I think what's really odd about this question is how much emphasis this person is putting on the first person perspective. <laughs> and I can tell just from sort of the tone and that emphasis that this person is a gamer. 
Um, They're they're definitely about this. They love those first person shooters. They like their Call of Duty. They like Doom. Definitely Doom. They want to play Quake competitively with their friends. They're probably playing Minecraft. And uh, they don't like the real-time strategy games, the ones where you're looking down on mm-hmm. sort of the map from above. Because that's the heaven view after, uh, yeah. during the rapture. You're looking down, you're controlling the troops, um, etc. So um, I think this person is wrong in doing that. All right. Well, uh, I guess they're just odd like that is what it comes down to. They are. They're just a real quirky, random person. Yeah. Well, uh, this person doesn't have to wait until the end of uh, time or the end of um, human history, pre-rapture anyway, to find this out because they could just watch this movie called A Thief in the Night. How's that for a transition? It was a good one, man. I think you did. You did great. Well, I'm a professional journalist, so. <laughs> you're you're a professional journalist, and uh, now I can uh, I can uh, give you a review on LinkedIn for your transition <laughs> skills. That's right. I'm gonna have to put that skill down. Um, <laughs> so uh, maybe we should. Let's see. There's so many ways in here, but maybe we should just start uh, as we often start now when we talk about films and uh, TV shows by just looking at the Wikipedia description of this film. Because we could summarize it, but why? But why? I mean, someone else has done it for us. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, let me think here. Should I read it in full or should I read it in parts? Let's read it in parts. Okay. All right. So here's the brief plot summary in parts, uh, according to paragraph breaks from this professional Wikipedia, uh, writer. They say this, uh, in media res, this is the beginning of the movie. A young woman named Patty Meyer awakens one morning to a radio broadcast announcing the disappearance of millions around the world, showing that the rapture has occurred. She finds that her family has disappeared and that she has been left behind. The United Nations sets up an emergency government system called the United Nations Imperium of Total Emergency, or UNITE. <laughs> it's a great acronym. They definitely a, worked hard really to get the full UNITE. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and they declare those who do not receive the Mark of the Beast identifying them with UNITE will be arrested. That's the so, beginning. Yeah, that's great. So before we get to like the next paragraph, but what happens next in the film? I think it's really important. Uh, in media res, wow, that's a really great film term to mean that it starts in the middle of the movie. That's um, right. And then, uh, so so what you get in the beginning is what happens right after the rapture occurs. Uh, this woman, Patty, she hears about it. She's freaked out. Her husband's gone. And uh, then you get a bunch of flashbacks. And when I say a bunch of flashbacks, I mean 30 minutes of flashbacks. <laughs> it's fantastic. <laughs> It's pretty good. You get all of Patty's life story in <laughs> 30 minutes. <laughs> it's all you need, really. Um, good. Should we say anything else, or do you want to go to the next chunk here? No, the next chunk, once we get into the flashbacks, this is where the meat is. This is where um, the meat of the movie, yeah. Yeah, this is the meat of the movie. We just got you through the, the anti-pasta. All right. <laughs> the salad of the movie. <laughs> Several flashbacks occur to times in Patty's life before the rapture has happened. The flashbacks also show her two friends and their different approaches to Christianity. One who considers Jesus Christ her only Lord and only Savior, and the other, Diane, who does not take it seriously. Yikes, Diane. Patty considers herself a Christian because she occasionally reads her Bible and goes to church regularly, where the pastor is really an unbeliever. Well, that's editorialized. Yeah. Uh, she refuses <laughs> she refuses to believe the warnings of her friends and family that she will go through the great tribulation if she does not accept Jesus Christ as her only lord and only savior. 
One morning, she awakens to find that her family and millions of others have suddenly disappeared, as we've already noticed in Media Res. Uh, there's a great editorialization that goes on further, but let's just take a break and, and pause here. Um, these several flashbacks, uh, we're already getting into the, the world uh, of this film. Yeah, the building out the world. Um, it's just a regular 1970s kind of world, and Patty goes to church, but she's not super into it. Um, the, the pastor is an unbeliever part is very funny. Uh, there's a scene where Patty is in church and, uh, the pastor's talking and it's actually like a pretty good sermon. Uh, it basically is like, uh, Hey, does it really matter if you believe in the virgin birth? Does it really matter if you really believe in a literal Adam and Eve? And, um, sounds pretty good to me actually, but Patty is sitting in the pew and she's like checking her watch and like, when's this going to be over? (laughs) And then she starts like reading the Bible instead of listening. And like, Patty, please listen to your pastor. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Well, that's that uh, scene is after she's encountered this uh, young evangelical. um, (laughs) I don't know if I should call him a man or a boy. He's kind of in between. Um, But he is going around telling people about, uh, you know, the coming tribulation and all that kind of stuff. She hears about it. And her uh, her like her boyfriend or her friend's boyfriend of like three days is like making fun of it. And he's like, if you believe in all that stuff, you'd always be checking your watch because the rapture could happen at any time. And the guy's like, yeah, it could. (laughs) And she's (laughs) at church and that's exactly what she's doing. He got through to her. It's great. All right. uh, Let's uh, here. I'll I'll round out the rest of the movie and then through this description and then we'll pick apart the the rest of the film, pull out some scenes. but I love this description on Wikipedia because it was also written by an obvious fan, uh, a true mm-hmm. believer in the story of this movie. So they go on to say, Patty seems a strange breed of person who both refuses to trust Jesus Christ as her only Lord and only Savior. <laughs> Great phrase. And also refuses to take the mark. Patty desperately tries to avoid the law and the mark, but is captured by Unite. Patty escapes, but after a chase, is cornered by Unite on a bridge and falls from the bridge to her death. And here's here's the twist. Patty then awakens, and the entire film's plot is revealed to have been a dream. Yeah! She's tremendously, she's tremendously relieved. However, her relief is short-lived when the radio announces that millions of people have, in fact, disappeared. Horrified, Patty frantically searches for her family, only to find them missing, too. Traumatized and distraught, Patty realizes that the rapture has indeed occurred and she has been left behind. In the ensuing plot, the questions are whether or not she will be caught as she was in her dream and whether or not she will choose to take the mark to escape execution. Yeah, it's probably worth saying that there's about four other films that happen in the same universe (laughs) after this one's over. So you can find out what happens to Patty if you want to. But let's just talk about this movie right now (laughs) and what it means for us. And Jesus yeah. Christ is our only Lord and only Savior. <laughs> Again, <laughs> the strangest way to phrase that one, but okay. That phrase appears in just this description uh, three times in like but, one paragraph. And nowhere in the movie, actually. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so someone out there is going through something. <laughs> <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. All right. Uh, Matt, well, let's just start. Like, what were some of your favorite scenes in this film? Yeah. Okay. Um, the movie is like i mean you watch it and it's clearly a horror film it uses so many tropes from horror as a genre um and it mixes those uh tropes pretty well with uh evangelical christianity and like dispensationalism and times theology and so on um so all that to say it's 
I mean, a movie that was definitely low budget in 1970, but it's still like actually kind of good. And there's some really interesting things about it, like cinematographically. Whoops. Yeah. uh, But as far as the actual film goes, um, I think the things that stand out to me most, I think like the movie itself, like the the storyline thrown together, it could mean it's like whatever. There's so many weird like weird moments in it but um larry norman's song which is in the beginning of the movie which is called i wish we'd all been ready uh is the (laughs) thing that like sticks with me i think the most uh it's performed by this like weird youth group band in the very beginning of the movie where this like um this uh not a boy but not yet a man is uh kind of preaching (laughs) this end times gospel and it's it's performed in this really strange way like i like the larry norman song itself is like unsettling and kind of eerie but um it's it's sung by these like two women and this like weird youth pastory guy on a keyboard and it's like really unsettling and the movie or the song plays uh, a few times throughout the movie and every single time it's just like god this is creepy why is it like this yeah it's really unsettling yeah it is for sure so um there's that it the movie honestly reminds me a ton of being at like christian summer camp i don't think i mean like at at christian summer camp for sure like you know you're hit over the head with like uh you know say the sinner's prayer accept jesus into your heart etc etc probably never quite like this hard but um the exact sort of things that people would say to you in those types of um spaces were how this movie felt to me um you know like um, extremely emotive appeals to accept a really esoteric type of theology is, is maybe the best way to say it. Yeah. I don't know. There, there's a lot more that we could probably say about the movie, but uh, what about you, Dean? What sticks out to you? Yeah, well, just what you're just saying is right, that I feel like every scene in this movie is just a kind of like canonical moment that evangelicals have to have uh, in their faith life. <laughs> like, uh, it's really like the life cycle of an evangelical in many respects. Because um, you have like, there's a scene where a little girl accepts Jesus into her heart. She prays the prayer after being horrified by the possibility of uh, being left behind. Um, pretty common story. Uh, you have like, you know, the adults trying to work out their own, like, faith, uh, whether they're in the evangelical camp or not. Like, everybody's kind of trying to sort it out and put it together. Um, and you have the end where they're uh, either raptured or not. Um, and I think it's also fascinating because it presents the evangelical view of the rest of the world in a really intriguing way. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Like, you really get an idea of, what of like, the universe that evangelicals think that they live in is this film. Like... It's fictional, but also it kind of isn't like <laughs> it's like a speculative documentary in some ways in a really in a really bizarre way. Um, anyway, yeah, lots of lots of scenes that stick out to me. Uh, probably my favorite one, though, um, and we'll maybe we'll come back to it, but just to get it on the table. Uh, there's a moment when um, there is a, a pastor preaching who's like a dispensationalist pastor, a tribulation evangelical pastor. And he's talking about the rapture and all this kind of stuff. And he's going on and on in his sermon about, you know, whatever, how the Bible works. And he gets to this point where he tells this story about his friend where he says, like, yeah, my friend, um, he got up in the middle of the night and he took off all his pajamas. And then he went downstairs and then his wife woke up and she looked over and there were all his pajamas. And she freaked out because she thought the rapture had happened and she was left behind. 
Well, anyway, on to the next point. Like, there's no point <laughs> attached to it at all, which, first of all, is extremely realistic. That's exactly how every sermon is at an evangelical church, just disconnected <laughs> anecdotes about a pastor's life. Um, but the, the very next scene is a little girl in the kitchen, and uh, there's, like, some food on the stove and nobody attending it. And she suddenly comes to the conclusion that she must have been left behind, and she's, like, yelling for her mom, who doesn't come right away. And uh, she's, you know, traumatized. And then the mom does come. And then she goes and prays the sinner's prayer or whatever to be saved. And I thought it is actually like the perfect picture of how evangelicalism traumatizes children. <laughs> like, you know, inadvertently, the film presents it as this like moment of, uh, you know, triumph or success that she kind of came to her senses or, you know, she's prayed the prayer that she should have prayed or something. But like, it's such a, if you're not, like, if your brain isn't broken by evangelicalism, it's really clear how uh, how awful it is. Yeah, you know, that scene where the little girl prays the sinner's prayer is so wild, too, because um, what stuck out to me, like, immediately grabbed my attention was that, okay, so it's, like, her mom, her sister, and, and her, the little girl, they're all sitting on a couch, mm-hmm. and she's, like, really shaken up because she just thought everyone vanished and she's alone in the world, uh, which is... Uh, exactly the most terrifying idea for a child. And I remember that feeling very distinctly. Um, Mm. But she's, she's she's sitting on the couch and um, she's like, okay, I want to ask Jesus into my heart. And her mom's like, Oh, you know how to do it. You know, the words. And it's, uh, I hate it so much because like, she's exactly right. Like if you go to an evangelical church, that's like the one thing that you do know how to do. Right. Um, (laughs) Out of, out of all of the Bible things that you might've learned, you know, you learned about the uplifting verses in the Bible and all like the wild Bible stories or whatever. Uh, but the only one thing you really know how to do, like the only words that you kind of have for yourself and to understand yourself theologically and like, religiously are the sinner's prayer and that's bad right. um <laughs> it's bad so much yeah i think so i like i couldn't get over just how uh i don't know i think when you're in it especially if you're younger all that stuff seems like the most natural thing in the world right like you get yeah. the equation like you're bad and like god's good and like god will help you out but you just gotta do the right stuff and then everything will be balanced like the balance sheet will come out right um, and of course, there's lots of problems that might come after that or whatever, but uh, the, the logic of it kind of makes sense inside. But when you're looking at it from the from the outside, like in this film, uh, it looks like a scene of like child abuse or like cultic kind of, you know, really weird, like ritualistic sort of, uh, uh, I don't know, like created uh, trauma for no reason at all, uh, which is really unsettling. Yeah, it is super unsettling. Um I mean, the movie is funny and silly, and I did say I love it, and I still stand by that. But um, (laughs) as a product of evangelicalism and like, I mean, my church wasn't super into sort of end times theology, but there was a certain amount of it just kind of in the air. Yeah. Uh, This movie is like also extremely triggering. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it is. Uh, it's it's scary because of uh, that trauma, not because of (laughs) the rapture itself. (laughs) Woof. Um, there was something you said a minute ago though, that, uh, really made me think, uh, you you did say it was kind of like a speculative documentary or it's, uh, you know, this is a movie that tells you how evangelicals think about the rest of the world. And I think that's really true. Um, there's this quote from Stuart Hall, who is like a, a big deal media theorist. Um, Mm -hmm. you might've heard of him or maybe you you didn't. And if you didn't, let me, this is a good plug. Take a media studies class (laughs) in college. (laughs) Keep me in business. Um, okay. But anyways, uh, 
he has this quote that's about violence on television. And basically the idea is that, um, you know, he's, he's responding to the idea that like violence on TV causes you to be a violent person. He's like, no, that's not true. Actually, when you see violence on TV, it really is just like an example of what people think about violence or what they think violence actually is in contrast to, um, you know, what it might be materially or economically or something. And I think this film is actually a really good example of that too. It's like, um, it's an example of uh, not the way the world actually is, not even a way, not even the way that like Christian theology works, but it is an example of the way that evangelicals think the world works. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's part of why it is so silly and campy and funny because uh, to be an evangelical, you have to accept a lot of things that are silly, campy and funny, but you think that they're real. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, we should talk about that. Um, not quite a man, not quite a boy uh, character some more because he's a great example of that. Um, like (laughs) he, he is basically always shown like sitting under a tree, uh, you know, like, like Jesus Christ, basically like, uh, he's this enlightened being and people just kind of gather around him, like more or less naturally to sort of hear him calmly explain what he believes about the Bible. And Mm -hmm. like some people are into it and they're like hanging on every word. And then other people are like more skeptical, but they're still pretty polite. (laughs) Like uh, they're like, whatever. And there's a moment when one of the characters becomes a Christian, one of Patty's friends, like we said earlier, uh, accepts Jesus Christ as her one, one Lord and one savior. And uh, she like comes up and hangs out with that guy again. And he's like, Hey, um, has anybody been like giving you grief uh, since you became a Christian? And she's like, no, not at all, actually, <laughs> which I loved. And then uh, he goes, yeah, well, just like be on your guard because the devil wants to take that stuff away from you. And <laughs> I love it because the evangelical sort of picture is that like evangelicals are are these like brilliant people who just sort of exude like the secret knowledge that everyone wants and needs. And uh, they can like, you know, helpfully guide people through the challenges of being a Christian um, it's just like a strange kind of even like weird self-portrait, you know, that uh, evangelicals often have this kind of feeling of self-importance or or like a cosmic significance. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I that guy, uh, the the not a boy, not yet a man um, Bible guy. I knew that guy for sure in youth group. I can I can exactly picture who who he is, and uh, he has all of like the best secrets. He's on the Bible quizzing team. He knows everything that's going on here. <laughs> Um, it does. It, it lends itself to a sort of self-assuredness about the world and uh, an undeserved self-assuredness. And I think it's bad. Um, cool. What do you think about the ending of the movie, Dean? So she uh, so Patty, oh, yeah. she goes through this whole thing. She gets chased down by Unite, the one world government that is a thinly veiled reference to communism. Um, and she eventually falls off this bridge to kind of like... Um, to get away from being captured or she's pushed off the bridge or whatever. It's kind of a tad ambiguous or whatever. Yeah. But then she, uh, she wakes up. Um, she wakes up like as if all, all the things that just happened in the film were a dream, which is a trope I hate. Um, that's (laughs) fine. And then she learns though, that, uh, actually it's not a dream and the rapture did happen and she has her chance now to kind of do it all over again. Um, which that is actually a trope I do. I do like <laughs> the, <laughs> it, uh, it's a dream, uh, but actually it's real is kind of awesome. Uh, and yeah. she lets out this, like the, the movie ends with this kind of amazing, um, like chilling blood curdling scream from Patty. Yeah, it's and horrifying. It's just, it is really horrifying. Um, and it's actually all real. So that's kind of cool. I don't know. What do you think of the end? I'll say, 
I have two things about it. The first is that the last scene with her screaming as she listens to the radio was genuinely scary. I found yeah. it like actually unsettling. Uh, and that was something I kind of didn't expect, actually. <laughs> uh, so that was pretty wild. Um, but also, it's weird because it like her waking up from the dream and then starting the day over and repeating it was a very like weird Groundhog Day kind of moment or like mm-hmm. a Twilight Zone episode situation. Um, it, it almost feels even like if you've seen that show Russian Doll on Netflix where, uh, you know, she dies and has to repeat um, her birthday every day. Yeah. Uh, it's like the same kind of feeling and it's really weird. Like, I don't know. It, it, it almost makes the rest of the film kind of even more interesting to think of it as like the beginning of a, a Groundhog's Day cycle. Like how's she going <laughs> to play through the rapture again and again and again until I guess she like gets saved or something. I don't know. Uh, it's a really bizarre ending, but very, very funny. Yeah. If the rapture was a video game, it'd be an episode of Black Mirror. Um <laughs> Yeah, well, it's a neat it's a neat ending. I think it's good. Um, like I said, I mean, the movie is campy and silly, but it has some impulses in it that are pretty, pretty scary, actually. Um, yeah, if you think about it hard enough, it's definitely very scary. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's certainly a feeling of like loneliness and alienation. Um, she like doesn't get the the mark, um, the mark of the beast, which is actually the computer binary for 666. I love that. That was very yeah. funny. Um, <laughs> one guy, they're like marking all the people and you can get it on the back of your hand or your forehead and somebody gets it on the back of your hand. And this one guy, like old guy sits down and they're like hand or forehead. And he's like, I'm not afraid to be known as a citizen. Put it right in my forehead. <laughs> they couldn't be more excited to get it. Um, I love that. But yeah, that, that feeling of terror is definitely real. Um, and I thought that was pretty interesting too. Um, the way that they played that out. Yeah, for sure. Um. Yeah, there's a lot to be said, too, about the the movie's um, 1984-ness. And it's like, yeah. um, it's sort of anti-communism, the Mark of the Beast, and, um, you know, the sort of like big one-world government party kind of thing is very much a, a communist stand-in. Um, but it's not super interesting, at least not to me right now. Maybe in the time it was like more obvious to people or more scary to people, but um, now not so much. I don't know. yeah. Well, it's weird to look at this as something that precedes like the Left Behind series and things like that, because yeah. Left Behind uh, takes all this imagery and then ramps it up. And then that has become the sort of canonical fictionalized version of the of all this stuff, the rapture right. and everything else. Um, but seeing this as before that or as like the seeds of all that stuff, I think is kind of interesting um, because there's a lot of interpretive work, even if you're like a weird dispensationalist and you think that, you know, this is how the end times are going to play out, uh, to create like the character of a guy who's like the head of the UN, um, and like 666 has, has to be disguised because everyone knows what it is. So it's just computer binary, like all that kind of thing is pretty interesting, even for the seventies. Yeah. Um, it's kind of like <laughs> forward thinking in a perverse way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's true. Well, uh, now that we've bullshitted about this movie for about 30 minutes, uh, 36 <laughs> minutes, um, <laughs> maybe we could maybe we can bring our academic smart guy, uh, uh, Christian Marxist kind of reading to the film. Uh, yeah, is that, okay. can we can we shift gears in that direction? <laughs> sure, sure. Thank you for to consenting to my one world government <laughs> of this podcast. Um, That's right. Unite. <laughs> Yeah. Well, so I watched this movie and um, right. Like I said, I relived all the trauma from my past. I thought about church camp. I thought about all these terrible things. It was all very bad for me. 
Um, but I did think about one other thing too, and that was William Connolly's Evangelical Capitalist Resonance Machine, which is an essay um, we talked a little bit about when we talked about Tad Delay's book uh, forever ago. Um, that's right. Uh, if you if you have a Magnificast bingo card out there, uh, we did just say Tad Delay, so you can mark that one off your bingo <laughs> card. Um, there's this really interesting part though of the Evangelical Capitalist Resonance Machine where uh, Connolly talks a lot about the second coming and the rapture and left behind and how important that is. Um, not just important, but but how actually foundational it is to evangelicalism. So maybe coming off of this uh, big evangelical thing we did, um, it's probably a good thing to revisit and maybe help us analyze the film even just a bit more. So uh, can we just go ahead and read it? Is that cool? Yes. Thank you. Um, again, you didn't have decision. It's just me, the one world government over here. <laughs> All right. So this is what Connolly says. The cutting edge of the evangelical right is organized around a vision of the second coming. Dramatized in the best-selling series of novels, Left Behind, um, but it's basically exactly the same as this movie. Uh, the series has sold more than 50 million copies to date. In the first novel itself, titled Left Behind, millions of born-again Christians around the world are lifted suddenly to heaven during the rapture. The rest of humanity is, quote, left behind. Uh, the most significant thing about the heartfelt promise of the rapture, uh, Christo-terrorism and the Day of Judgment, is not the horrendous future it anticipates, though that is notable. It is its effect upon the current conduct of millions of people who entertain the vision. To embrace this vision is to place a series of defiled doctrines, institutions, and constituencies under daily suspicion. It is to foment a collective will to revenge against non-believers, held to be responsible for the time of tribulation and obstacles to future bliss awaiting believers. To be born again is to be protected. It is also to adopt unquestioning obedience to those ordained to interpret the will of Christ before the rapture. Okay, so um, Connolly's talking about Left Behind, but like all of the same themes and uh, stuff uh, is present in A Thief in the Night. Um, a Thief in the Night in, in every single way it is the, you know, it precedes Left Behind. It's, it, it's doing it all first, uh, just long before, but it doesn't matter. Um, but I think the, the point still stands that um, that the, the, the tribulation, right, the times that follow the rapture aren't, you know, the big, um, the big emphasis, uh, even though the last half of the movie um, is dedicated towards those ideas. Instead, it's um, it's kind of about thinking about all of those people that will just kind of go along with it, right? There's sort of like a mass culture critique to it, that there's all these just like mindless drones out there yeah, yeah. who are willing to do whatever the government tells them to do. And I think that's, that's really wrapped up in the anti-communist ideas of that type of genre of literature too. Um, but but to be born again, to be um, to be a Christian, to be evangelical, um, is to give your obedience to a different set of people, a different types of authority. And it's interesting because it gets worked out into being that that like obedience to to like very conservative values. It, it gets worked out to be um, you know countercultural, and um, I think that's a really fascinating like sleight of hand in all mm -hmm. of this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's right. That counterculturalism, <laughs> it's weird because this film, too, is uh, bound up in that in some ways, right? Like it, um, the song that you mentioned earlier by Larry Norman uh, is often noted as like one of the first Christian rock songs um, because like rock music is supposed to be countercultural and Christians didn't like it. Uh, but then like Larry Norman himself as a Christian rock and roll guy was kind of... Uh, had like mixed mixed reception among Christians, some of which thought that he was like cool and some of which, you know, they didn't because they still didn't write like rock and roll music or whatever. Um, and you can kind of see that here, like uh, the film itself 
you were telling me doing a little research before this, Matt, that uh, a lot of folks, um, this was like the first movie they had ever seen in their whole life. Uh, oh, which yeah. Is really interesting, too. Uh, so there's this strange play on like the narrative. You're right to say that it's a it's a, like a critique of mass culture. And it's kind of like, um, you know, it's all about the secret knowledge, the minority of, of evangelicalism kind of being right after all. Uh, but at the same time, it's like evangelicals first kind of foray into like being a, a mass culture, a mass produced form of of that like niche culture or something. Yeah, I think that um, the the media history of this movie um, actually matters a lot for its reception and kind of uh, figuring out like what role it plays in the psyche or whatever of evangelicals at the time. Um, of, of course, like that's my I mean. I do like media history. So of course, like that's my take, but I think it's important. <laughs> so, I mean, like really quickly, I guess if you're not super familiar with like, um, you know, American Protestantism in the sixties or fundamentalism in the sixties and seventies, um, uh, for a whole bunch of denominations and faith communities, etc., um, movies were taboo. You couldn't go see them. They were, they were the work of the devil. That was, um, the community of, the the religious denomination I come out of uh, the Nazarenes, that was definitely the case with them that you couldn't see movies. Uh, even though I could, it was kind of a, it was kind of like over as a thing by the nineties. Um, but you know, before that you couldn't see movies. Uh, but what was really interesting though, is that um, uh, it, after world war two, for some reason or another, the U S army ended up do donating a ton of film projectors and equipment to churches and schools. Cause I guess it was like a place you could give surplus to, I don't know who knows how that works out. But um <laughs> But that's really interesting because like the, you know, all of these, um, all of these churches uh, had access to a film projector, though they weren't like people who watched movies. So when this movie comes out, um, it was like, you know, one of the only movies available to people who are in these religious communities, fundamentalists or, you know, mainline Protestants or otherwise, you know, um, the the one they were they couldn't go to see any of the other movies, but this is the one they could see. And like it just so happened that their church was going to show it or something. So, um, you know, the kids who weren't even uh, kids in the 70s who aren't even allowed to go see The Sound of Music or whatever um, could sit in their church uh, with their youth group and uh, watch A Thief in the Night. So pretty wild. Yeah, it is. I mean, you mentioned earlier in that Connolly article left behind, he said the series at that time that he had written the article had sold more than 50 million copies. Uh, but there are estimates that like this film was shown uh, way, 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 way more than that. It's hard to get like an exact read on how much how many people had seen this movie for exactly that reason that you're saying, because they would just screen it in churches and they couldn't keep track of that the way they can keep track of like box office sales. Yeah. Uh, no, so, one's, like, no one's uh, doing sales for this one. <laughs> yeah. The like, you know, who knows how they calculate these kinds of things, but the highest estimate that I could find online was 300 million screenings of the film. It's uh, too many, too many screenings. Yeah. I mean, no matter what, it severely outpaces even the the influence of Left Behind, if if that's the case. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Um, I think that I, I don't know. I imagine that our listenership has probably never heard of this movie or seen this movie. And maybe you have good for you. But I, I would imagine that Left Behind is a way more uh, relevant cultural cut touchstone. But uh, this is the movie that started it all. <laughs> right. Well, uh, there's a really great article on it um, that I found called uh, The End is Always With Us, the 40th anniversary of A Thief in the Night by Amy Frycomb on uh, religionandpolitics.org. And uh, she has this quote from a, a religion scholar named John Wallace. 
who says, uh, just as Alfred North Whitehead said that all of philosophy is a footnote to Plato, so we might say that all of evangelical Christian film is a footnote to A Thief in the Night, uh, which is a pretty amazing thing. And I mean, that's probably true of evangelical Christian film, but I think you might even be able to say something like a lot of evangelical Christian theology about like the end times seems to (laughs) also be a footnote to A Thief in the Night, you know, like the Schofield Bible or whatever is one thing, but having it visually shown to you like this is another thing entirely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, um, I mean, uh, I've been working on this little bit of research about media history and churches and sort of like the pedagogical role that um, film and drama uh, theater has ended up playing in sort of their pedagogies. And I think that you're exactly right. I think that A Thief in the Night is probably a really influential tool um, for a lot of um, older evangelicals, for sure. Um, yeah, absolutely. I I don't know. It's at least true in my experience, right? Like I, I'm a person who is, you know, too young to have actually seen the movie when it was relevant. Um, and now I'm watching it as an adult and I'm recognizing all of these things in it that I'm like, that are exact, exactly like uh, I remember church being. So um, it's very much the case that this movie is playing in the minds of uh, older evangelical Christians as they do church. Yeah, it's really fascinating, too, because even in that way, there's very little in this film that's like really I mean, the a lot of it is like scary or whatever, just by virtue of the subject matter. But very little in it is kind of morally objectionable. Like, you know, they could make a movie about the uh, the time before the rapture where everyone is just like sinning off the wall or, you know, whatever. Like (laughs) um, sometimes that happens in like evangelical fiction, like. They'll just show people, I don't know, like somebody dressing a little too promiscuously or whatever. But the bizarre (laughs) thing about A Thief in the Night, there is one shot where somebody is dead and they're like being wheeled out on a cart. They were like shot by the government. Um, But apart from that, everything else is pretty chill. And even like Patty and her husband. So her husband gets raptured because he had accepted Christ and she didn't because she's like an intelligent person. Uh, They uh, (laughs) are like there's there's a photo montage of their relationship after they get married and it's like the most wholesome thing <laughs> that you could ever watch it's like a series of photos of just them like doing the dishes and like hanging out in like nice clothes like they're just like normal middle class like suburbanite like waspy people basically uh and i think that's actually probably one of the most interesting things about this film like Patty's like a completely normal person and uh, she's the person who gets left behind precisely because like uh, being a good person might even be more dangerous because you don't know what you don't know. Well, uh, Patty has these other friends in the movie too, um, whose names I don't know. It's uh, a woman who doesn't think Christianity is very cool and man with uh, sideburns. And I don't know their their character names. They end up joining uh, Unite, you know, the, the Mark of the Beast bad guys in the end. And like the the film takes such length to to demonstrate that Patty Patty's burden after the rapture is so intense because like she knows what she needs to do, but she kind of refuses to do it. And yeah, just like you said, like being a good person is just too hard or or whatever. But it's so weird because even after the rapture, it's not like she goes and accepts Jesus Christ as her only Lord <laughs> and only Savior. She right. just like, I don't know, runs away and like tries to get away from it. it I mean, like the, the Wikipedia art, uh, article writer is is correct in that she is the she is the peculiar type of person who um, <laughs> won't take the mark of the beast for whatever reason, but also won't accept Jesus Christ as her only Lord and only Savior. 
And it's very interesting. Yeah, it's weird because the movie has a hard time kind of explaining what it wants you to think about her even as a character, right? Because she is a she makes the wrong choice. She doesn't accept Christ, but she's like a likable person. Yeah. Uh, So then you sympathize with her at the end because Unite is bad, right? It's led by the Antichrist and they're persecuting this woman that like you've been told to like. Uh, But she's also not in heaven and apparently doesn't have a way to get there. So it's strange. Like, it's almost like it can't let you revel in the suffering of people who deserve it or something like that. Um, But it also can't let you get like too attached to them either. It's really weird in that way. Yeah, totally. It uh, the Patty is also a really I mean, they write her as a frustrating character, too, because she is like um, she's definitely the person that you uh, you a regular Christian is supposed to identify with the most. right? Right. Like. Um, you know, uh, it's like, you know, you go to United Methodist Church, you're Episcopalian, you read the Bible, you go to church on Sundays, you're a good person, right? Wrong. You haven't accepted Jesus Christ, you're only <laughs> Lord and Savior. And it's just like, oh, it's so, it's so annoying. Uh, get yeah. real. Like, like, what difference does it actually make whether or not you've like said the magical words or, or what? Like, it, it's just such a weird a weird theology, a weird, like um, a weird thing in Christianity where you have to say these, like, I don't know the spell. So, so Jesus knows who you are and reading the Bible and trying to be a good person just isn't good enough. And like, ah, screw you. Screw you. Well, it's like, (laughs) it's like a theology of pure control, right? Because uh, you just have to get somebody to do the thing that you tell them to do for no reason. There's no good reason behind it. And if you don't do that thing, then not only are you actually, uh, you know, not going to go to heaven like you get left behind, but also you're probably not as good as you think you are. Yeah, totally. I mean, but that's terrorism, though. That's exactly the logic yeah. of terrorism. Like you do this or you'll like suffer this really horrible thing. <laughs> it's like super manipulative. It's like not it's not like legitimate. It's like a weird type of like uh, abuse that you just kind of like live into and become a culture to. Yeah, it's really interesting, too. I think this movie is actually really good to watch if you don't know anything about evangelicalism, honestly, because like so many of the scripted conversations that they have are scripted in such a way that this is what an evangelical thinks will happen when they start telling you about what they think. Like, this is what they want to occur. So there's a scene where the conservative pastor guy or the fundamentalist pastor is converting Patty's husband. And, uh, you know, he's like listening and nodding. And he's like, ah, yeah, that makes a bit of sense. And he like raises a couple objections, like philosophical objections. And, uh, you know, the pastor just deals with them pretty handily. Like he's got some good canned responses. Um, Patty, the whole time, she's just like obstinately, you know, convinced that she's a good person and uh, the nut can't be cracked or whatever. And then one day it's too late. Um, I think it's just it's actually a really good example of like how evangelicals kind of understand themselves moving about the world and what they hope to get out of their, you know, bizarre <laughs> like bible studies yeah exactly um even i mean that's that's totally true it's exactly what evangelicals think and how they the it's the lines they will give you for sure even though they're <laughs> like poorly delivered it's the lines that they will give you for sure it's crazy also poorly delivered in real life <laughs> that's true they're bad actors all the time <laughs> uh well as we're coming down to uh close to the end here um i did want to point out two fun facts that i learned about this movie oh yeah um 
fun, I guess, is maybe not the best adjective, but one is that uh, the woman who played Patty, um, her name was Patty Dunning, uh, like her real name was Patty, and the character's name is Patty. She became a Christian while doing it. She was not a Christian when she got cast as a lead. It was just a job, she said in some interviews. Uh, But she became a Christian after that and then did a bunch of movies until later on in like the fourth or fifth movie. I guess these movies were causing a strain on her marriage. So uh, they wrote her out of the series by having her killed. Poor Patty. So there's one. Poor Patty. The second is that Russell Doton, uh, who is a writer and a producer of A Thief in the Night, and he also stars as the liberal pastor who gets left behind, and he shows up, I guess, in the rest of the series too. Um, He was also a producer and director of the famous horror film The Blob. It's amazing. I think so. It makes complete sense, too. Yeah. Like, they're using real, actual horror techniques in this movie, for instance, that you can tell are carried over from somebody who spent time, you know, making movies before there were just Christian movies. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Well, Dean, um, to round this one out, uh, how would you how would you rate this film? Oh, my gosh. How would I rate this? How many stars would I leave behind in my review? How many Bob the Tomatoes would you give this one? (laughs) How many? That's for our Christian Christian movie review site, Bob Tomatoes. Yeah, yeah. Um, hmm. It's tough because there's so many categories to rate it on. uh, Family friendliness, um, you know, uh, graphic scenes, uh, truth, truth quality. I think overall I'd probably rate it a three out of five Bob the Tomatoes, um, mostly for, uh, <laughs> okay, the three, st- the three tomatoes all correspond to three specific things, in fact, that those are what earned the tomatoes. Um, the first is the Groundhog Day mechanic, love it. Mm-hmm. I was impressed, I'm into it. Um, the second is uh, the Sideburns character, when he starts dating one of the other characters has this really great impression of an old timey uh, crooner that he keeps using as a, a romantic line. And I love that great, um, solid tomato earning quality. And, uh, the last tomato for sure, uh, is definitely earned by the liberal pastors, actually good sermon in the film uh, that unfortunately did <laughs> not go recognized as a good one. Right. Yeah, that's good. Okay. How about you? Matt? Um, what do you give it? Yeah. You know, I'm going to give this one. Okay. So all the things you just said, totally true. I'm going to give it, though, four Bob the Tomatoes out of five okay. because it actually is super scary to me, but for all <laughs> the wrong reasons. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think it's it did actually achieve its goal. I mean, if if the goal of the film is to be a horror movie, it's uh, it's not explicitly the goal, but it is kind of. It did just scare <laughs> the shit out of me. Just uh, just remembering all of all of what this was like. I don't think I really understood about the uh, understood the, the trauma of evangelicalism until I kind of had to relive it all through this movie. And uh, it's the scariest thing. It's the spookiest and scariest thing. So there we go. Thanks for listening to the Magnificast. If you like what you heard and this one this time, you definitely did with this spooky, scary movie. You can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash the Magnificast. If you can't do that, that's cool, too. You can also give us a new rating on Apple Podcasts. That's right. iTunes is gone. Um, Apple Podcasts is a new thing. 
and you can give us reviews on it, and we'd really appreciate that. Uh, cool. The uh, intro stuff you heard was from A Thief in the Night, but usually the intro music is by Mario Armstrong, and the outro music um, is by The Logical Spoon. So there you go. Cool. We'll see you next week with more spooky, scary content. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church We'll meet down by the riverside There we'll swim with all creation Never get tired, never bored Don't worry, someday There'll be no dam between us and our Lord Jackson, keep your hoods up Keep your hoods up And you stay up late Jackson, you keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late, oh don't mind, a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon, so come on now.